being able to use words in a way that is precise and clear, but also that kind of makes the leap of the thought in words. You know, you have to find that way of framing an insight that takes the familiar and makes it feel kind of new or sheds a new light on what people have kind of been looking at, but not seeing for ages. And, and that's all done in words. You know, we don't present to clients through the medium of interpretive dance or anything, at least not, not yet. What's up? Welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I have Claire Strickett, a planner at Adam and Eve DDB in London and a food and wine writer, quote unquote, on the side. Welcome, Claire. Hi, Mark. Thank you for having me. Now, I do like to do these interviews in a way where I'm, I'm trying to create some evergreen content. However, I think it's, it's worth talking about the topical situation that we're in right now in that you've been in London, you live in an apartment mostly by yourself. What, what's your experience been this year, especially like, like socially, intellectually, psychologically? What's all that about? Uh, I think it has been one of just monotony. I think that is the defining experience of, of this year. Just the same four walls, the same the same people, people that I love and that I'm very fortunate to be able to see. But I think one of the things I've really missed, and in a way, I'm lucky that it's taught me how important it is. I think I always knew, but it's, you know, you knew in, in a new way. It's just the the value of serendipity of sort of encounters you would never plan for, but that just kind of happened. Like I really miss talking to people. I don't really like that much at parties for like five minutes. <laughs> Those kind of things that you would never arrange, but they're actually sort of part of the rich texture of your life. Um, and yeah, it's kind of, it's just been quite, quite boring. But the fact that I get to say that the worst thing about this year is that it's been boring means I'm incredibly, incredibly fortunate. So you know, I really have to remind myself of that. I, I feel like the example you just gave about missing conversations with people that you don't really like and people that you only speak to for five minutes at dinner parties, I feel like that kind of answer can only come from someone with a deep and boisterous inner life. Why was that the example <laughs> that just came to mind? Oh, I was just, I think I was thinking about, um, you know, how fortunate I am that I can arrange to see my boyfriend who's in my bubble we have these bubbles in the UK I think they exist in other kind of COVID ridden countries as well you kind of you agree to see certain people within strict kind of limited social circles and I can see friends who live nearby we go for walks because we're allowed to hang out in the outdoors which is great fun at the moment because it's freezing um but I was just I don't know I was just thinking about I think it's thinking about December and how much socializing normally goes on in December to the point when normally I actually start to feel a bit resentful of it and a bit kind of exhausted and, you know, partied out by the time Christmas itself comes around. But so much of that time is spent saying, oh, I haven't seen you for ages to people that you haven't seen since like the last Christmas party or whatever. And then having a really kind of, oh, I love your dress. Oh my God. Yeah, no, how is that? We must do coffee. Yeah, we must do coffee. You know, you're never going to do coffee. And I, I never really realised how much those, those little conversations, sometimes you have a little bitch about someone you both know or whatever, and it's just like those, those little encounters do actually give you life in a way that I hadn't really realised in a way I can't really explain. But I think December is, is particularly salient, I guess, of, of the sorts of encounters, those sorts of social encounters and how, how absent they are at the moment. Everything is very planned and very intentional and I'm really missing the kind of unintentional. 
Yeah, it sounds like it sounds like you're missing the interaction or the freedom that comes with you being able to access the gentle parts of your dark side. Because those examples, I mean, not nice examples, Claire Strickett. I'm just saying. <laughs> I think they're nice examples. Nothing unnice about, about that. someone. <laughs> Gossip is essential. Gossip is essential to human happiness. I think. It, is, well, it doesn't have to be malicious gossip. True, exactly. True, it's true. just the passing on of information and the and information is currency, which is what gossip all right. is all about, right? Like I know something that you might not know and I'm going to display my superior knowledge by telling you. So information is currency. But okay, yeah. I mean, who? I'm not sure I would have thought that sort of slightly tipsy um gossipy encounters with people at parties would have been the thing I would have named as the thing I'm missing but turns out turns out it is who knew that's this year has definitely been a learning experience for sure that's kind of cool though like we're going to talk about writing in a second and and that kind of observation that kind of self-reflection is that's what a writer does then you got to work out how to put it into words in a way that captures other people's attention and keeps them engaged so that's it's beautiful and honest and i wasn't judging i was just having fun with it <laughs> uh, one final question or well, at least one final question i got to i think before we go into talking about writing so i live in the land of the free in the united states of america and we don't believe in bubbles over here bubbles are a hoax the bubble industrial complex is not a thing <laughs> over here so my question to you you bubble loving UK person is do people know that they're in someone else's bubble and can they get removed and would that feel like being removed from a group chat? Uh, so and so has left the group. Um, well, yeah, I think a bubble is a mutual activity um, because you have to be in each other's bubble. You can't you can't sort of bubble independently. Um, so yeah, it's very much a kind of coming together sort of. Uh, experience it's quite funny it reminds me a lot of um and you were sort of very young and what we would call kind of junior school so you know kind of seven or eight and there was a huge sort of conscious thing about who was whose friend or who was whose best friend I don't know if this was just a thing that was more common among girls and um, but there was a lot of like will you be my friend asking people that in the playground will you be my best yeah. friend um and it kind of reminded me of that because in some cases I think people's bubbles are quite obvious. I'm in a bubble with my boyfriend. I'd be actually quite affronted if it turned out he'd, he'd chosen somebody other than me. But um, I think a lot of people have had this kind of like, well, you can only have one person in your bubble. So who's it going to be? It's almost like asking someone to prom, you know, but just like without any party. <laughs> Yeah, I, 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 there must be people creating elaborate plans and schemes to announce their bu- bubbles, to get people into their bubbles, to leave bubbles. Like it, it, there's got to be some funny behavior with that. Have you come across any? Have you heard of any? Um, I've definitely heard about some people making very calculated decisions about their bubbles. And bubbles are only meant to be between two households. So, I mean, okay. they're probably... Deta- hmm. Come on, details. Give me the gossip. So, but, well... <laughs> I won't name names, but I definitely know some people whose whose choice of bubble have been influenced by the fact that the other person has, you know, a really nice garden and that kind of thing. So fair call, yeah. fair call, absolutely fair call. But you know, definitely a slightly calculated but very wise wise way of approaching it. You know, it's not really mm. the person you're interested in; it's more their sort of large house and, and lovely garden. This is good to know in case I ever visit a country that is highly conscientious and bubble-oriented. I now understand some of the bubble etiquette. Uh, so that's that's great. That's great. Uh, so you work at Adam and Eve DDB. Fair to say one of the best agencies in the UK? 
if not the world, I would say. And I can say that because I've only been there for a year and a bit. So most of it has nothing to do with me. So it's not really boasting. Okay. So you believe that Adam and Eve DDB is one of the best agencies in the world? Hmm, I, th- I think so. I mean, I think they've put out just, you know, brilliant work over the last 10 years and it's been very highly awarded. So for what, as far as those, for what those awards are worth, um, it's, you know, different people have a different point of view on that, um, but also very effective work. So, you know, that's absolutely the, the sort of measure of whether work is good is whether it brings in the money. So, so on yeah. those counts, yeah, they've got an amazing track record. I have to just hope I don't kind of mess it up now that I'm there. Uh, you'll be in safe hands. I mean, like one person, it's, it, once you move to a bunch of different agencies, you realize how important the word culture is. And we use the word culture all the time, but it can take a decade or two to actually work out the cultures that you've thrived in and not thrived in. And then if, if a company's got good work and they've been doing good work for a very long time, they're going to have a very robust culture. So chances are very unlikely that you're going to be able to ruin its reputation and ruin its culture. But also it is interesting to hear you immediately say that it's one of the best in the world. Uh, I know I'm going to deal in a stereotype here. That's that's not like a very English response to the question, is it? You know, usually there's more self-deprecation or it's it's quieter and casual. So I, I appreciate that you were immediate with that. And, and Yeah, I actually thought that as I was saying it, I was like, it's not a very British thing to say. But you know, the older I get, the less interested I get in false in false modesty. I don't know why I think it's just that kind of giving giving fewer fucks. Are we allowed to swear on this podcast? I should have probably checked that. I guess so. Um, I guess so. Okay. I'll try and keep it relatively sort of family friendly. Is the yeah, I totally keep it family friendly. I mean, there are a lot of families who just sit down at Thanksgiving and, and like they want to listen to a strategy podcast with you know, some guy guy with a strange mullet haircut and a sarcastic face. It's totally what goes on. Uh <laughs> This is this is just banter between writers, and I, I quite like this. But the giving fewer fucks thing, I think it's really important for a, a writer to embrace. And what we're going to talk about today is is you as a writer, but also that straddle life. This is a new concept. I just coined it, the straddle life. Uh, when you've got one foot in a day job where you happen to write, but you might not be called a writer or necessarily identify as a writer, and then you're straddling the other life, which is where you are a writer, possibly getting paid or doing your own creative work. Uh, you know, what, what is that straddle life like? Do you feel, for example, that you have to compromise some of your sense of writerness in your day job? Or do you feel that the day job is somewhere where you can fully express? Let's start there. Oh, God, what a good question. And so much to sort of think about. I think the i mean first of all i think being a planner or strategist or whatever we call themselves whatever we call ourselves like language is one of the most um, being able to use words in a way that is precise and clear but also that kind of makes the leap of the thought in words you know you have to you know distill reams of research into a kind of pithy summary or you have to find that way of framing an insight that takes familiar and makes it feel kind of new or sheds a new light on what people have kind of been looking at but not seeing for ages and and that's all done in words you know we don't thank, thankfully present to clients through the medium of interpretive dance or anything at least not not yet there's a lot too far far too much powerpoint but most of it is is words writing propositions etc so i think that 
actually writing is so much of the day job, so to speak. Whether that means thinking of yourself as a writer, I think is is very is very different. And of course, we have copywriters, we have the creatives, and there's always that kind of need to respect that they are the creative craftspeople. We're just the planners. Make sure that we're, we're sufficiently self-deprecating. But I think that um, actually that aspect of writing and using words has really made me a better writer just in the sense of a person who writes you know not as someone who would say when asked at a party or do you do because it requires kind of clarity of thought speed of thought and a real ability to think about your audience which I think is so critical to to writing so mm-hmm. you know this client doesn't this person or this boss you know really only doesn't like brevity they can't stand waffle you could cut this person really likes to kind of you know wander around in an idea and look at it from all the different directions and kind of chew the fat and you know this this is going to get circulated without you there to explain it so you really need to make sure that there's no ambiguity which is impossible because all words have ambiguity in them sentences even more so in pages endlessly but it's it's really really good to to write with a thought of who's receiving even if that doesn't turn out to be true I just think you have to have a sense of where you're directing your words so I think it's made me better with words in terms of having something to put into the side project I think that can be a bit of a double-edged sword because I think sometimes you only have so much resource, so much brain power, and having a very, very, very enjoyable, demanding, intellectually satisfying job. Sometimes I think, God, if I just had a really boring job, I think there'd be a lot more like left in my brain mm-hmm. for the stuff outside of work. But I give so much of myself and my thinking to my job because I love it and it's fascinating and there is so much to be got from giving a lot that it can sometimes mean there's not much left in the tank for kind of side projects so I think there definitely needs to be I often need like a week off before I can really kind of feel like my own thoughts arising Mm -hmm. out of kind of the pile of work thoughts that they've been kind of buried under it takes a bit of time away away for them to kind of start wiggling up to the surface again yeah it it totally makes sense um, do you identify as a writer who happens to do strategy or perhaps as a strategist who happens to write? Uh, I would say the latter because, I mean, on a really, I think a couple of things. First of all, the bulk of my time is not spent doing the writing of books, articles, etc. Like my nine to five, and I say that, laughingly because we all know it's eight till seven whatever or ten whatever it is sometimes nine to five today it was quite a good day and I like that it means I can chat to you with you know lots of juice in the tank still which is lovely I just spend more of my time doing planning so (laughs) I think the other thing is that there is a real um uh fear of being a pretentious prat that keeps me from being like oh I'm a writer I don't know I just find that very very hard to say is that more pretentious than saying you're an account planner? Uh, well, I mean, the fact is that almost nobody knows what being an account planner is. So <laughs> <laughs> it's, it may not be positive, but it's pretty neutral if you say that to people. They, if you say you're a planner, they assume you're a town planner or, you know, mm. I, God knows what. Um, 
Although, did you know, like, it, it, London's different, right? I, I think I read some research that somewhere like a third of London is working in the creative industries. Uh, and there is much more of a center of gravity for good and not good uh, in, in London around advertising and broadly speaking, the creative industry. So I, w- I would have thought a lot of people in London would actually be familiar with the work that you do, like more than probably any other city in the world. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's definitely true that it wasn't until I sort of was visiting some friends up in in Newcastle, which is a, a sort of a, a city with predominantly industrial heritage up in the northeast of England. For those who aren't familiar with British geography, and and it's, it's you know it's it's wealth and its past was built on industry, and it's always still kind of a big centre of car manufacturing, etc. And 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 we went out for dinner, and and like nobody around the table, my friends' friends worked in the media, and it was only then that I realised all my friends work in media, which is really unhealthy especially for people who are meant to be you know trying to understand customers of our brands mm. uh, most of all my your, friends are actually journalists london. yeah all my london friends work in media which is just profoundly unhealthy and most of them are journalists so they are actually all like day job writers so i think that's maybe another reason why i'm conscious that i'm very much just an occasional writer okay i want to sit on the tension in that topic for a second what would it take for you to call yourself a writer? Not, not that you have to be like walking down the street and announcing it to people. <laughs> what would it take for you to call yourself a writer to yourself? I think it would be my main job by which I, I mean, this is super mercenary, but like my primary source of income, <laughs> which is a funny way of framing it really. But it's only now that you ask that I, I've kind of articulated that, but I think that is, that is true. I don't so think that's necessarily right, but that's sort of where my head landed at well it does mean that you're wearing goggles or glasses that are in the shape of capitalism and that you are seeing yourself through those goggles which would mean you're also standing in front of a mirror Claire to be clear with whatever this analogy is that you are wearing the goggles of capitalism standing in front of a mirror looking at yourself back and that you're only going to call yourself a thing if you've got money coming in connected to the thing that you'd like to call yourself oh yeah absolutely I mean Exactly, exactly why I think it's such a problematic way to look at things, even though it is apparently how I look at things now that you ask. Because exactly, you know, why should, why should we be defined by the thing that, that makes us money? And it's such a, another sort of thing I really notice about London versus non-London. And I'm very pro non-London. I lived in Scotland for a long time and I love it, apart from it's even darker there now than it is here. But other than that, it's a great place. And, um, and I really remark upon how how much rarer it is for people to ask, or oh, what do you do, as one of the first kind of questions on meeting people. And also that question is like, what do you do? Well, I, you know, I take really, really hot showers. I enthusiastically but badly cook. You know, I run five kilometers. Like, what, what do you do? When did we decide that what did you do had like one answer and it was like, what pays your salary? And yet that is kind of absolutely how we are taught to frame things. So... You're right. That's how I frame things, um, which, and I'm not necessarily delighted about it, but I'm, you know, being honest. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think people listening to this, especially if they're strategists who happen to write and they're like, you know what, well, I think I've written since I was four years old, but I've never called myself a writer because who would I be to call myself a writer? Someone else mm-hmm. could call me that, but I'd never do that. Why, why do you think calling yourself a writer is pretentious? Well, I think I worry it might be, which is not quite the same thing. 
No, that's a very good question. Um, I think there are, well, I think writing is one of those interesting professions that has a huge amount of cultural capital accrued to it. Like, I also have written since I was little. I used to, I really, really miss the kind of unfettered uh, creativity, which has many outlets of children. You know, I used to write all kinds of stories. God knows what they're about. But without that kind of self-consciousness, there's just no check on your uh, creativity. And it's just joyful. And, you know, I'm not the first to observe that by any means. Um, but I wrote, God, all the time. And I always wanted to be a writer. And it's sort of, did I want to be a writer because I enjoyed writing or did I want to be a writer because I liked the idea of being a writer and I do think there are quite a lot of people who like the idea of being a writer um, but not necessarily the actual practice of it mm-hmm. which really is very much just like having to do your homework <laughs> so, you know you just have to sit down and keep slogging away at it it's not this kind of like <gasps> genius state of rapture which i think it's very easy to imagine any creative profession is you know even concert pianists have to spend four four hours a day practicing their scales so i think there is maybe a sort of temptation to call oneself a writer when one isn't really practicing writing um a little little uh little mental callous there with the word writer what what do you think would change in your life or would have to change in your life if you started to think of yourself first and foremost as a writer i think it's i would need to do more writing question. i would yeah, need to do more go. writing to be completely honest i remember I, I worked briefly at a very small publishers called pyrene who uh, is run almost well at that point almost single-handedly by an amazing woman and they publish um, literature and translation which is very very low a percentage of what's sold in this country which is such a shame um and yeah, she also is a novelist and she has two kids. Uh, Micah, her name is, if anyone listening to this ever hears, knows her, she's, she's amazing. And she has two kids, runs a small publishing house out of her house as it was at that point, you know, busy, busy, busy life. But she had books she wanted to write. So instead of getting up at six every morning, she got up at five every morning and she wrote for an hour because that was the only hour she could carve out of her day. And I think that you are... You are a doing word person when you spend your days doing that thing. Yeah. And your answer to my question was immediate. Like I was going to throw in some extra words to buy you some time. And I want to get us to repeat the question and answer. So when I asked you about what would have to change or what would change if you called yourself a writer, your answer was immediate. Like I was buying you time and trying to throw in words and you immediately responded. So I want to repeat it. What would change if you called yourself a writer? In order for me to call myself a writer, I would need to do more writing. Hold that thought. So for all the strategy folk who've written and who think that they're a writer who want to write, that's, that's the insight. Sorry to be a strategy nerd. Like an insight to me <laughs> is an idea. It brings things together and it gets you to reorganize your life. So if you want to call yourself a writer, what do you have to do? You have to write more, right? And that is, mm-hmm. first of all, scary, right? But once you start living it and trying to do it, you become it. And then you're like, I don't, I don't know what else I could be now. I am a writer. And the word writer, if you introduce yourself as a writer, which is a weird thing, it's not a pretentious word in, in a way that cook <laughs> or, you know, someone who washes cars. Uh, I a, agree. I think, car, you know, Rebecca Solnit, who's a, who's a writer who's, um, who I admire massively. And I recommend that anyone who's not read Rebecca Solnit's books goes out and reads all of them immediately because you'll just underline every third 
sentence as being incredibly wise and beautiful. But yeah, she's she wrote something like somewhere on the internet, like advice to writers or people who want to be writers or young writers or something like that. And the advice has sort of, I think it's a list of 10 things and they're all very good. But the basic premise is just basically JFDI. Like a carpenter is someone who does carpentry, right? You don't sort of say you're a carpenter because you think you have a kind of carpentry bent. You know, it's somebody who does carpentry, a carpenter and a writer, they're just doing things, words. Yeah. And yeah. um and you can't wait for the muse to come upon you just as a carpenter kind kind of can't get to work one day and be like, I'm just really not feeling this today and kind of just give up. Like you have to just that's what I meant. The experience of it is really so much closer to just having to write essays for my homework than, you know, I think yeah. people like to think. You just have to sit down and keep going and and get to that point where you're like I don't even know what I'm trying to say anymore like and just keep going or you know maybe have a a cup of tea but then you have to come back to it you can't really allow it to be the whim of your sort of artistic sentiment or any of that stuff yeah yeah I there are quite a few books that touch on the theme of stoicism when it comes to art Uh, books like uh, the war of art and turning pro and a lot of them have the just fucking do it mentality. And, and I, I think that's true. That is so difficult to do if you are consumed in a job like yours. And that's why a lot of famous writers over the years have had very simple jobs where they've written at night and then not had to think too much during the day if they've worked during the day. It's totally a valid coping mechanism. It just depends on your financial needs and, and money situation. Um, but also I think, you know, I was listening to a neurologist talk about uh, drive and the way the brain works and that it's difficult to write every day. There are people like Stephen King who apparently write a few hours a day and read a few hours a day, and that's nearly every day of the year. That's great. That's not going to be everyone. Not everyone has the capacity to do that. Some people have complicated lives that mean that they couldn't do that. Uh, And there's a a neurologist I was listening to who talked about how sometimes the the need to be creative, it builds up and then it, it does search. But that means that there's just a spectrum there's the stoic sit down and write stop complaining you want to be a writer turn up to your desk every day at the same time and write and then there is also the acknowledgement of how the brain can work for a lot of people and that there needs to be a bit of a surge but both of those ideas they're not at odds with each other i don't think it's just that there is a bit of a spectrum but i don't think they're at odds with each other either i think you have to have that surge to kind of get you going like if there wasn't that why would you kind of take that course at all but I think it's that there will be probably after the surge an an ebb and you you kind of do need to try and you know carry that surge through just through sheer force of will I think so I don't I agree I don't think they're in opposition to each other what's the biggest uh, thing that you've written the thing I've written is definitely the book I published co-published this year which is a book of sort of fun food and wine pairings um so it's a very simple simple book to write in that it's a succession of kind of small short entries in a way it's sort of a hundred pairings so really there's none of that kind of getting lost in a plot or anything but yeah it came out this year through ebury press which is a lovely publishers in this country who publish ottolenghi and other wonderful cooks and chefs and food writers and other things that have nothing to do with food. Yeah, it came out this year in August. Meant to come out in March, but all the bookshops shut in March, so that was yeah. not not possible. Yeah, that's definitely the kind of most substantial 
thing I've written and also published. Awesome. Well, first of all, congratulations on publishing your first book, maybe the first of, of many. Why food and wine for you? Well, I've always loved food, which I think is something that almost everyone can say. Um, I would be kind of disturbed if someone was like, well, I know these people exist, but I find it quite disturbing if someone was like, ah, food. Like, I've just always been super interested in it. And I think not only because I'm greedy, but because it's so, I really think you can know everything about a society from how and what people eat, especially how you know, do they, do they eat their desk, at their desks at lunch? Do they, you know, take a break? Do they um, cook in the family? You know, the sort of, the the, mo- the way that we mark important moments always through food and drink. It's so, I just find the sort of sociology of food so interesting and I've always found it so interesting. And I have a friend who I wrote, ended up writing the book with, who is a sommelier, so he knows way more about food, uh, wine than I do. But I've always found it quite, so in in Britain, we have this very complex kind of class-ridden society and there is a lot of um, snobbishness and um, a sense of, oh, that's that's a fancy thing. That's not for me. I grew up in a very sort of ordinary family. We didn't, we didn't have like fancy food at home. We didn't have wine at home. It wasn't like I grew up in the bosom of it all. But I've, I've spent, I've been lucky enough to spend a lot of time in France, in Italy, and I've just always really admired the way that um, wine, which in the UK is something that people are like, oh, I don't know much about wine, or, or you know, you're seen as being a bit of a snob if you do know much about wine. In in countries where wine is, you know, a natural, a sort of native product, this lovely ease and and relaxed nature uh, about the way people engage with it. And I just think, you know, if things something's delicious, like ordinary people in air quotes. It should be for everyone. Like we shouldn't let snobbism keep the good stuff for the posh people. Um, mm. So I was really keen to try and find a way to give people a way into wine, um, which luckily I'd got through some really interesting people that I'd met on my travels and some lovely friends and from working in the restaurant industry for quite a long time. I want to try and find a way to get people into, to give people like a way into a subject that feels really daunting. Mm-hmm. and um, impenetrable and inaccessible. So we thought actually food was a great way in because everybody loves food and most people. And also it's very easy for people to talk about food. If you say, what's your favourite wine? People are like, oh, I don't know, I couldn't even really tell you. Say, what's your favourite food? They're like, oh my God, I, my death row meal would definitely be like a beef wellington. I just love it. Like blah, blah, blah. People are just very relaxed talking about food. So we just did a book where we paired really everyday foods that people love to eat with with wines with wine recommendations so it's like what to eat with different kinds of pizza what to eat with different kinds of roast dinner very british thing um different kinds of pasta different kinds of like takeaway food um different like what to drink with birthday cake like don't don't serve champagne with birthday cake ever um but I mean, I, I exaggerate because we're trying not to say do this or don't do that. We're just like, here's a thing that will probably be fun and you should try this and it may be really nice. And hopefully just give people like a way in an applied knowledge rather than this like abstract body of knowledge that I think yeah. wine often appears to be. And obviously like lots of really difficult work involved in researching um, such a slog. <laughs> so we had a lot of fun. And also co-writing was a great experience. And actually I would really recommend to anybody 
Um, if you're struggling, as I have so often in the past, to see a project through from the initial moment of, oh, I should really do that, that's a great idea, to actually delivering it. Like, if you can think of a way to collaborate on it with someone, I would say it's the tr sad truth that we're usually much better at being accountable to other people than to ourselves. Yeah, totally. So, I really so the book is called... So the book is called Which Wine When, What to Drink with the Food You Love. Uh, your yep. collaborator's name is Bert Blaze. Such a good name, um, right? I wish I had it is called really, Bert I mean, Blaze. You, you both have really good names. Uh, like, oh, I've been, better. You know, I published a book this year and I've seen a few of them go to English addresses. And, oh, you know, like, there was one that was like 10, I'm going to make it up, but, you know, 10 Bridgehead, Riverhead, Bridesmaid. And you're like, wow, what an address. That's incredible. That was all the address. That's the entire address. And the book is going to get there. It was so beautiful. Um, <laughs> what was there a specific memory event moment that triggered you to go, you know what, I've been sitting on this kind of topic, maybe specific idea for a while now. This is the one to do. Yeah, actually, it was just having a chat with Bert. So he had an idea for a slightly different book. And this is actually where the kind of strategy side of my life really came into play because I was just, you know, a good planner needs to be kind of very good at bringing together sort of commercial thinking with, you know, what people actually will want or need. And, and I just thought the idea that he had was a bit too niche and probably really appealing to people like, you know, who worked in the industry, but probably would go right over the heads of the sort of people that would need to buy it in order for a publisher to be interested in publishing it. So we just had a kind of chat. We, I was at wine, wine tasting with him and we just kept chatting and I was like, you know, maybe it should be more like this and maybe it should be more like that. And by the end of the evening, we'd kind of developed the concept that turned into the book. So it was very much sort of starting with an idea that wasn't right, but seeing that it could be right. And then, you know, very wonderfully and generously, he was like, well, this is, both our ideas now so we should write it together so we did mm. uh, what was your workflow the workflow oh my goodness this is taking me back so i we sort of divvied it up you know he would we went through we actually did like a questionnaire which i thought was it reminded me of a lot of you know planning research projects we did a questionnaire and asked people like what's your favorite comfort food you know what are your favorite kind of chinese takeaway classics um you know just basically like research the food that we should include and then we kind of made a mega spreadsheet so you know sometimes I think a lot of writing is about ways to organize your thoughts people use post-its or you know for narrative for plot driven things or you know we had a spreadsheet um and then yeah we, we did it almost all by email just kind of I would start writing something and send it to him for his input he would start writing something and send it to me for input and it was considering we'd never worked together before it was just such a dream I was so lucky to have such a brilliant collaborator like we were both very vocal in voicing our opinions but both very open to each other's and I think that's the key for all good collaboration yeah that dynamic you're describing is the opposite of the dynamic that I've heard from people who've written academic books with other people that can be especially prickly because there's so much status uh, seeking and reputation defending involved with that. You know, I'm, I'm just trying to get us into a conversation that could help somebody else who's a strategist who happens to write, but who would never call themselves a writer because that's pretentious. Understand some of the steps that, that happen from being that person into being a person who now has a book. What was the hardest part about starting? once you had the concept? 
our concept was so kind of tight from the outset that I think the hardest part was really a lot of the practical stuff. One of the hard things actually was getting a publisher, which I mean, I'm sure everyone's like, well, yeah, that is the hard thing. But it's, you know, you've got this exciting idea, you take it to people and they're kind of like, yeah, but, you know, our database says that books on this subject don't really sell very well. So you're like, but my book won't be like the other books. So well, your database can't possibly predict. But, you know, there's quite a lot of um, publishing is both very, is very keen to kind of look at what's done well and then, you know, replicate that. So it's hard to be like, oh, but we want to do something different because that's untested. And I don't know how this works for fiction because fiction is very different. And you also have to write the whole book when you write fiction, which I think is such a huge ask. Like we just wrote a proposal with sort of extracts, which never ended up in the book anyway. But if you write a novel, you would write the whole novel, which I just think is such a, God, that's really difficult. But yeah, I think basically learning, and this is another thing that like, if you are a strategist who wants to be a writer, you have so many of the skills is figuring out all the stuff we talked about, um, you know, who's this for? Paint me a picture of the person that is going to buy this book and why they're going to love it. Is it a bit like this other thing that they like, but, you know, this other thing doesn't do this and this is going to do that. Um, and 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 then you'll say so that's your audience that you want to read the book, but then you also got to think about the publisher you're talking to and, you know, make sure that you're really viable because it is an industry, it is a business. So not that all writers must already want to be published, but if you do want to be published, I think like my strategy skills of like selling ideas to clients, of kind of writing to an audience with a commercial objective in mind was super valuable. So I would really yeah. take heart from that if you're someone who's in a similar position to me. Yeah, I think uh, getting clear on the concept, as you mentioned, and also who you're writing it for, and bringing to your mind both of those things, concept and audience, but also how you feel for them and how you feel an urgency to get this to them so it can help them in their lives. I think that's really important. And then I guess you had a bit of a cheat code for structure because from the outset, you wanted to have a hundred of these pairings, right? So that means that you don't have to sort of put a ton. I'm not saying that you didn't put any effort, but you don't have to put a ton of effort into you know, plotting it out and what the sections are going to be, you've got a number to serve and, and numbers. It's just like when you're running a brainstorm, we're going to come up with 10 ideas in the next 60 minutes. Go, uh, you know, you provide structure, but the hundred pairings is a bit of a cheat code to give you a structure to serve. And the number can keep you going when you're feeling a bit frustrated. Just keep going. Next one. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, it was so, I, you know, I, I, there's a reason I've written that book, but I haven't written a novel, even though I'd love to give it a shot one day, because I think that is much harder, certainly for me. So yes, that was really fortunate. But I, I really like what you said about that sense of urgency and kind of like thinking of the audience and why you're going to take the book to them. So one of the things, one of the things that was quite refreshing is that, you know, whilst a lot of clients will want kind of data uh, driven cases made for work um, and quite rightly so I didn't find that to be quite such the case of happening in the industry but it, as always like the power of anecdotes so you know we would say you know, we are constantly getting texts from our friends being like got a girl coming around for dinner to mine for the first time and I'm cooking Vietnamese and I don't know what wine to buy with it what should I buy quick I'm in the supermarket and it's like that just as a little anecdote of why this book is needed was really, really powerful. And we all know that sort of thing from our strategy work, I'm sure. So it's like, that's exactly the way to do, um, to sort of sell in your book as well. 
Well, also, I love that because it, it sounds like you were a bit of a go-to person for a while for various reasons that, the, that you enjoyed it. Uh, I was thinking as you were saying that about when I was young, I used to write love poems and love letters for friends who weren't always that emotionally uh, complex. I'll say that much. And uh, That's amazing. And, and, <laughs> well, but, but, but it's like we have these patterns in our lives and when we're not sure about the creative project we want to do, when we potentially, I use this in a bit of a loaded way, but when we hide in a career, when deep down we know we want to do our own projects, um, sometimes you just, you just got to like be honest with yourself and remember the weird things that you've done for a very long time that you know are basically hiding in plain sight. And you've just got to take off your blinkers and be like, oh my God, I used to write love letters all the time. Why don't I write a novel about love letters or a book about love letters? Or for you, I always get asked about food and wine pairings all the time. Why don't I just do that? Uh, and it, it seems too simple. But No, uh, you're so right. Because it's the, in, it's the water we swim in, right? So it's like, yeah. it's so easy not to see that thing that you, and, it, and then we get into this really cheesy, you know, your kind of brilliant qualities are right there. But like, follow your path etc etc but they absolutely are and and you're right they absolutely are hiding in plain sight and often like in every aspect of life I find that the best ideas always seem almost too simple when you first have them um mm. and that is it's easy to dismiss them for that reason but it's also the reason that they're the right ideas have you read the book since it was published I've dipped in and out of it. To be completely honest, I'm so terrified of finding a typo that I can barely bring myself to open it. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah, <sighs> I, I, found, I found one in my book, having read it 12, 13 times before it was printed and my gut fell to the floor. I, I, my eyesight, eyesight went all foggy. I was like, ah, it's totally cool. Most people won't really care. It happens. Uh, I've got a friend whose book's been reprinted like 10 times and translated into so many languages. And it was only recently as it was being translated into French that someone spotted a typo that's made it through all those editions. So mm -hmm. yeah, it happens. How do you feel about your own writing? Oof. I mean, I would say it's relatively untested in the areas that I would really like to be good at. So fiction is something I'd really like to, to be good at and I've never really put the effort into being good at it. So I think it's good within its, I'm, you know, I'm confident with my writing in its relatively limited sphere. I think one of the things I'm very conscious of is that I'm very porous in a kind of being a ventriloquist kind of way. So if I read a book in a particular style, almost all, all books are in a particular style, but you know, in a particularly distinct style, I really find that coming through in my own work for like the next few days. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's a strength, but it's also something that when you develop your own very distinct and kind of confident style, I think will happen, should happen less. So that's something I'm kind of interested in doing but yeah i don't think anyone should be ashamed of that and stephen king who wrote the book on writing which is worth reading is one of the books that most writers probably read he talks about how he sets his day up to write and to read and part of that reading process is it's just osmosis you're tapping into someone else's cadence and you might see uh, an unfamiliar word or a word that you don't see frequently and it triggers off a whole chapter of a book. And so I, I think it's like these uh, creative practices is totally okay. There's no right or wrong way. And I, and I say that not in a, like, I don't mean to patronize you either, Claire, but like sometimes if I'm a bit stuck, I'll grab a book and read a couple of pages and then go. 
and it's great. But that also might happen within a week or two of not being too productive as well. So there, these things are all just natural and you got to find your way with it. What, what would be the creative project that you would do that would scare you the most, but that you think you really have to do? How's that for a question? That was a brilliant question. To it. Brilliant question. Oh, it would definitely be, as everyone, everyone thinks they've got a novel in them, I would like to try and get mine out. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, that is truly, truly, truly daunting. Um, but I hope one day, I've got a couple of ideas. But yeah, I'm very, very long way from being able to execute them in a way I think I'd be happy with. But again, it's kind of like, well, where does this idea that you can't, you shouldn't sit down to write a novel until you can write a novel come from? Like, we don't, I wouldn't apply that to any other walk of life. You know, I'm never going to sit down at a piano until I can play, you know, Beethoven sonatas. Like, how do you think you're going to learn to play them? Mm. So yeah, I think I need to come up with a plan to get there rather than just hoping I'm going to lay that egg one day. It's not going to happen. I love it. I love it. I, I do. I do think of the question myself. Like, what's the thing that scares you the most right now that you pro- should probably do? And it's a lonely room when you're looking into the mirror, asking yourself that question, because usually you really do know the answer, and you might have known the answer for ten years, and you're like, oh, I've got to do that thing, don't I?" I know. I like and it. the and problem it, is it that it, the the risk is that it, you become avoidant of it because you've put it off for so long. Do you ever get that? It's like, it's precisely because it's been on my to-do list for 10 years and I haven't got around to it that I'm now like so ashamed of my not having got around to it that I can't even think of it anymore. And then it all becomes buried in like layers and layers of kind of avoidance and stuff. So I think, sometimes I think telling other people about those ambitions, chosen people, chosen few can be good because it externalizes Mm. it. That can be a good Mm. technique. But do you feel that having had one book published that you are probably in a better position, maybe more muscle memory, more momentum to do a second one? Or do you think it kind of, that the slate wipes clean and it's going to be difficult just like it was last time? Although it sounds like you had a really good experience. I had a really good experience. Um, Writing something on my own will be different, but I do think it makes it, I do think it makes a massive difference. Um, Just knowing that you can do something, I think it can only help, right? Hmm. Love it. So Claire, where can people find you on the internet and where can they find your book, which wine, when, what to drink with the food you love? Well, on the internet, I am at Claire Strickett on Twitter. Uh, I'm there far too much and far too often. So you'll definitely find me wasting my time there. And the book, well, I believe in some countries it's on sale and it's on sale via Amazon and also via independent booksellers. Um, It's not on sale in the States yet, I don't think, which is a a shame. So any of your American listeners will um, just have to kind of go without and and hope that one day they can travel to Europe and buy it here. But yeah, unfortunately, not not for now. You might have to travel here and do an American version of the 100 pairings based on the 100 most Yeah, I think we'll have to add even more American wines, actually, because it's such a brilliant wine country. And I think we've barely scratched the surface but yeah again if i have to do that research trip you know i will bear it with grace <laughs> don't worry your publisher would take it out of the cost or out of your ah, money don't you worry <laughs> i'll let them know <laughs> awesome claire thank you so much for joining me on sweathead today it was beautiful to chat about writing and uh you know i think my agenda has been relatively clear which is not just to kind of get more people to find out about you uh but also to encourage people who have a hunch that maybe one day they're going to write. They'd like to write. And they know that they've written for a long time. Just go, go do it. Go do it. Work out how to do it. Go Feel do that, it. that urgency and go do it, right? 
Exactly that. Claire, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. It's been a pleasure. Please. Sure.